You ever do something wrong? Did you ever do something wrong but not maliciously? In other words, your heart was in the right place. You meant to do right, but uh, you made a mistake. You had a weak moment, whatever. And uh, you were harshly treated for it and you got in trouble. Well, the right kind of heart is important when we're doing anything. And the heart that is described most and is by the word love, of course, that is... Um, uh, kind of uh, made a w- very worldly kind of love in um, in secular, like in songs and cards and Valentine's Day and stuff like that. But uh, truly, God's love in a heart is is going to eventually get things right, although not always going to do everything right. <clears throat> Opposed to that is the wrong kind of heart who can do the work. So. Imagine that there's a work to be done, it's done right, but the person who does it doesn't really care about anything. It just cares about actually getting the work done and moving on to the next thing. And this is not how God wants us to work. God has a lot of work for us to do. But the work itself will be nothing if we don't do it in the right way. And that way is love. It's not the world's love. You all who listen to me know what love I'm talking about. But anyone who does not listen to me, I don't know why you'd be listening now, but if you are, that this is the love of God that we're talking about, not human love. And a heart that has that love, although will make mistakes, will eventually learn how to do it right. So let's, uh, we're going to start in Colossians chapter 1. Before we get to Matthew and uh, Colossians 1, let's open up in prayer and be grateful to God for his love and that he has done two things for us. He has given us his love as a gift when we were baptized by the Spirit. Through the Spirit, he shed abroad his love into our hearts in Romans 5.5. 5. And he has also modeled that love through Jesus Christ. So we see the love of God and we have the love of God. And now, for each of us, we are commanded to live the love of God. So, with uh, the desire to learn, let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, thank you for all that you do and all that you have done through Christ our Lord. Thank you for who you are and for opening up to us the ability to see who you are. We can't truly see you fully, that we can see what you reveal. And what you have revealed is in your word. And by your word, Father, through the spirit you have given us, we can, with great um, insight, see you, your plan, your purposes, your attributes, and how you have saved us through Christ our Lord. To be able to see that salvation, to see him and in him what makes that work, you know, what makes him do what he does so that we will live accordingly and to really rejoice in that life. And so, Father, we are just so very grateful for all you have done. And through your word, Father, today that we ask that you enlighten each of us as you would have it. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. 
So when Christ uh, gets baptized by John, here's a map from basically how where he walked to get baptized from Nazareth, somewhere west of the Sea of Galilee, roughly about the end of that red arrow, to uh, Bethany beyond the Jordan, which is roughly, we don't know exactly where John the Baptist was baptizing, but somewhere around the Jordan. And, uh, and that's roughly a trek of about 70 miles. Christ walked 70 miles at the time that he knows that he has to begin his ministry. He does not know this time until the time comes. Um, we assume that in his humanity that he is waiting for the proper time, and when the time comes, he goes. And this is when we first see him as an adult in the scriptures. When he comes to John to get baptized by John, as, as we've seen, it is, as he says to John, to fulfill all righteousness. And we come to know through the rest of Scripture that what Christ is going to do here in his baptism is depict his future. Uh, and his future would be at the end of his ministry, the end of his uh, first advent, which would be his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And through that, he would fulfill all righteousness. He would fulfill the righteousness of the law in other, as being one who was perfect and kept the law. Remember, he was born perfect. Born of the virgin means he enters the Mosaic law, if enters the right term. But he enters the Mosaic law as someone who is not a lawbreaker and he remains perfect or sinless throughout his life. And so we could say that Jesus did fulfill the requirement of the law, which was righteous, righteousness, because he was righteous. But in atoning for us, this was the other aspect of God's will for his life, is that he would atone for the sinners. And to do that according to the law, the righteous requirement of the law, is the blood sacrifice. And he was the only one qualified to be that sacrifice. The blood of animals did not cover our sins or did not pay for our sins. Uh, but the blood of, blood of Christ did. Is that mine? No. So, uh, look at Colossians. So, hold on, before I get to Colossians 1.9. In Christ now, as we saw, John said, I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And when baptized by the Holy Spirit, we are immersed into, in Christ, and identified with Christ. And as such, we receive who he is, and we receive what he has done. So we receive the benefit of his work, we receive who he is. We're in him, and he's in us. Therefore, we receive eternal life, we receive forgiveness, we receive righteousness, and we receive more than this. And it's sad to me that we can get so familiar with such wonderful things that we think them common even. And that's insulting. And all of us have a tendency to do it. But we must understand how blessed we are as having eternal life, forgiveness of all sin, righteousness. We receive the mandate also to please the Father. Uh, Christ is going to please the Father. If we receive all that he is and what he does, then the commandment therefore is on us to please the Father. And it is. And that's why I start in Colossians 1.9. Look at it. For this reason also since the day we heard of it, Paul uh, speaking to the Colossians, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, 
to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. (laughs) Did you get all that? You can't get all that. You have to read it like 20 times and then read it again. Because this is Paul. I've actually had to exegete this. I exegeted this sentence just a few days ago. And it's participle after participle after participle after participle. It is truly, a participle is a verbal adjective that just, uh, you know, it's not a finite verb. And it, and it, with these participles, Paul just moves from one thing to the next to the next to the next. And in his movement, he has this big run-on sentence. It's truly a run-on sentence. And in this sentence is his desire for them, for Colossae, but also for us, for all, is God's desire, that we be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that, for the purpose of, that we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in all respects, Bearing fruit in every good work. And so uh, this, that's where it starts. Bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge, strengthened with power, attaining all steadfastness, joyously giving thanks. And all of those are participles that are built one upon another. Read them again. To, let's read them together. We're going to please God. This is a commandment of ours. We have to please him. And how do we do this? Bearing fruit. Increasing in knowledge, strengthened with power, attaining all steadfastness and patience, by the way. Both are synonyms. One's towards circumstances, one towards people. But attaining of all endurance, really, and joyously giving thanks. Bearing fruit, increasing in knowledge, strengthened with power, attaining endurance, That means in everything that you endure, you don't fall apart or break down. And in all of that, giving thanks. In other words, you're thankful. Thankful to God for this life that needs to endure through sorrow, suffering, loss. Thankful to God for this life where I get to bear all kinds of fruit, which, by the way, when I bear fruit, I have to sacrifice. You know, there's no way any of us bear fruit in this Christian life without the love of God. And the love of God limits me and also opens up doors that I could have never imagined. The benefits, the blessings, but also the hunger. And the hunger comes to the flesh. The flesh is the one that hungers because when I say no to the things of the world and the things of the flesh that the flesh wants, the flesh is going to want them and desire them. And then the flesh will become hungry, but I let it starve. Waiting. Waiting for what? Well, that we'll see coming up on Sunday. It's obvious in the scriptures that Christ didn't set us free and give us eternal life and then say, adios, go have fun, do whatever you want. He didn't do that. The redeemed in Christ have to please God. As I, The wording I use here is I, we're on the hook for it. The redeemed in Christ are on the hook to please God because Christ pleased God. 
It's not arbitrary, is it? It's not God saying, you know what, you know what would be great if you pleased me. You know what, you know what would really be the best Father's Day gift for me is that if you pleased me, if you made me happy. But this, this is a commandment to us. And as Christ did it, so must we. Now, what we have to get over in this is the fleshly idea that, well, this is going to cost us too much and it's going to deny us too much and that, you know, this pleasing of God will not be as beneficial in my life as what I can do to please me. And that is a big fat lie. Living life to please yourself, the majority of the human race does it. It doesn't work out well. It never has and it never will. The pleasing God, as we'll see, demands love. It's not just work. It's work done with love. And uh, that love is the most precious and rewarding of things that we can do. You mean if I give to others, I receive more in the end? Most definitely. If I lay down my life for others, I receive more. In other words, if I don't live for me, I receive more? The answer is most definitely yes. Much more. When we as, as human beings live for self, we gain nothing. We can work and work and work very hard to gain for self. And we end up with nothing. So in uh, the life mandated by God is first, it's rewarded. You're there in Colossians. Let's read it real quick. Colossians 3.23. Whatever, 3.23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. We know in Second Corinthians chapter 5 that we're going to be judged by Christ for what we've done, whether good or bad. And here, Paul mimics the same thing, that speaking to believers, whatever you do, do your work heartily because there's a reward for it. There's no specifics given to us about what the reward is. It's just rewarded. And in time and in eternity, and if you do wrong, you receive the consequences. And notice that it's without partiality. God's not going to say, well, you know, you're kind of my favorite, so I'm going to let this one slide. We receive the consequences of what we do. Uh, On the board, Jesus says, it's one of the the second to last thing he says in the Bible. Revelation 22, 12. Behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. This is over and over in the scripture how we are going to be evaluated or judged for our work. And the work is not just work. It's work done in love. Pleasing God, therefore, is a life that is mandated. If it's mandated, it has to be, three things have to be true about it. This is true of any mandate. The mandates from God have to be given to you by grace. I don't mean just the command itself, although that is a gracious gift, because the command tells us what's right and wrong. But the, uh, the, the ability to please God has to be given as a gift. None of us on our own. 
as fallen sinners, could actually in any way please God. And so God gives us a gift, and we've seen this. By the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we're entered into union with Christ. We're given a spiritual gift by which we can work, and that work can be done in love because, again, we have the Spirit within us. So it's given by grace. The power and ability are given, and it will be judged and or rewarded. And all three are always true of anything that is mandated to us. The power is given. The ability is given. The grace is given to do it. Just the option. The option to please God is not open to an unbeliever, but to us it is. To all believers it is. And if it's mandated, it will be judged. And so we should rejoice. Because when it's mandated, we know, you and I, that we have no choice. And when I say you and I, I mean all believers. There's not one in the body of Christ, who doesn't have this. It's equal privilege and equal opportunity for us, for all of us. doesn't matter where you've come from, doesn't matter gender, doesn't matter race, doesn't matter uh, IQ level, doesn't matter anything physical, matter. Our education level doesn't matter, the family that we were brought up in doesn't matter. What matters is, is that by faith we apply God's word in our life and then we, with this opportunity that we have, the opportunity will be fulfilled. God promises that. So we should rejoice that God has so gifted us and empowered us that it's not an option. It's a mandate. Again, we should rejoice that God has given us a mandate, not an option. He doesn't say, well, you know, it would be great if you did this. He says, do it. And if you don't, I'll judge you for it. Now, of course, as believers, we, don't, we can't lose our salvation. You're eternally saved. But for the work that we've done, we're going to be judged. So God says, do it. Now, and, and this, you know, God is so wise with us, also patient, forgiving, that he doesn't give us an opportunity to say, well, you know, this is just for the elite Christians or for others, not for me. And it is for you. And if you don't do it, you say up to this point in my Christian life I haven't done it, then you learn from the Word of God that you have to do it. But what about all the failures of the past? God says you're forgiven of all that. Now do it. What about all the decisions I've made? I mean, I've left a a whole strew of death behind me and disaster. God says, you're forgiven, now do it. You have to. And that makes us understand that it's not an option, it's a mandate. So in Matthew, go to Matthew 3, 13. 3, 13. And Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, again, a 70-mile walk, coming to John to be baptized by him. I bring up the 70-mile walk just to, you know, that this is not a random thing. Jesus is purposely coming to John to begin his ministry by his water baptism. John tried to prevent him. Uh, This verb, tried to prevent, is in an imperfect. Imperfect means that he didn't just say it once. He 
kind of repeatedly said, no, 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 you have to baptize me, I don't baptize you. And he tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you, do you come to me? And Jesus answering said to him, permit it at this time for, or permit it now, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I think it's us, you and I, John, are going to fulfill all righteousness. Now we've looked at this, and this was our lesson on Sunday, that to fulfill all righteousness, Christ is going to, in two ways, fulfill the law. He's going to keep the law himself, but also he's going to atone for the sinners, which is in the Day of Atonement, right there in the middle of the Torah, in Leviticus 16, the blood of the animal uh, goes into the Holy of Holies that one time a year, and it's sprinkled on the mercy seat. There's another animal, it's the scapegoat, where the sins of the people are put on the scapegoat, and the goat is sent off into the wilderness. This Jesus fulfills for us. It's the only way to atone for sinners is through blood. That is the law. But this is the blood of Christ, not the blood of animals. And so he does fulfill righteousness for us. This baptism also shows that he's identified with John. He's identified with Israel. He comes to John and says, baptize me. He legitimizes John by doing that. And he also uh, identifies himself with Israel, with sinners, because the people coming to John are sinners who are repenting and confessing their sins. So there's multiple aspects to the baptism of Christ. Then, there's so much more we could talk about there, but I'm going to move on. In Matthew 3.16, now as he comes up out of the water, and this is the word used after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. This indicates to us that he was immersed. Not that I find a big deal in the was he sprinkled or immersed or whatever. I don't think it matters. But he was immersed. And up from the water, and behold, the heavens are opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming on him. Lighting is okay of your New American Standard. It's, but it's just a common word for coming. And coming on him like a dove... A voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So the words came up. He comes up out of the water. And then oppositely, the Holy Spirit descends as a dove. And, you know, why the dove? This is not indicated to us. It's also not a part of my message today, so I'm not going to get too distracted with it. But it, it does seem to refer maybe back to Gen- way back to the beginning in Genesis 1-2 where the Holy Spirit is flying over the surface of the water. Um, but you know, we're at a loss here. Um, the emphasis for us today is this calling from the heavens or the voice from the heavens. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Why is the father pleased with the son? That seems like an obvious question, right? This is my son. He identifies the Lord as his son to all, all there who hear this, and he confirms him. He's quoting, there's a number of passages that are in view here. We'll get to them uh, in time. But there's Psalm 2, my son who's the king in Psalm 2. There's Isaiah 42, which matches this very well. 
this is my, but in Isaiah 42, it's my servant. And that's the suffering servant who I am well pleased with. And in that passage, the Holy Spirit is given to him. And uh, also in Genesis 22, where Abraham sacrifices Isaac. And God comes to Abraham and says, take your son, your only son whom you love. And that's in view here too, so it would seem. Why is the father pleased with the son? We'll go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. As we started in Colossians 1, we are to be pleasing to the Father, and our Lord is pleasing to the Father. Our Lord was pleasing to the Father for what reason we see here. There's more to it than, well, God the Father is pleased with God the Son, and, you know, it's a trinity. Well, of course they're pleased with one another. But here we're speaking of the humanity of Christ. And the humanity of Christ, although it gets into areas that are um, somewhat confusing to us, uh, you know, the fact that can he sin? He's tempted to sin. Is sin not an issue for him or not an option? And there's all those kinds of questions that come up. Um, questions we can't really answer. But what we can answer is that he is completely and utterly obedient. And that, too, is a manifestation of his baptism. He comes to John and is baptized for the sake of righteousness. It's not because of anything he decides to do. It's, and as he said, I only do what the Father willed me to do. And this is the humanity of Christ revealing himself as an obedient servant. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2, which we'll see in a minute. So this, this obedient son is the one who pleases the father because of his obedience. And it's not just obedience in, yeah, you know what, father, I'm going to be a human and I'm not going to commit one sin. Which is true. But it's not just what he didn't do, it's... Also, what he did do, you know, like in keeping the law, he, he did everything that the law required. But he also did something that the law did not require. Where in the law does it say, die yourself for the sins of another? It doesn't. No one could. It wouldn't be in the law. It would be silly to put it in the law. But yet, he will do that which was not... Uh, which was the will of the Father for him, which was to do something amazingly sacrificial. Now, when he's a, why not, when he's a baby, just kill him, right, before he even knows any better. Just take him and, you know, sacrifice him on an altar. And say, this is, the, this is the son, we're going to kill him for the sins of the world. But this is not the plan of the Father either. The plan of the Father is for him to grow to an adult and then portray himself and teach to give himself, to offer himself to Israel to be, while doing that, mocked and ridiculed and persecuted. And, and, and what was his response to that? Who does he go to be with during his ministry? 
Does he try to get into the Sanhedrin? Get a promotion maybe? Become the leader? Go to Rome? Get a political position? Who does he go to? The common people. He goes to the people who are suffering. He goes to the people who nobody cares about. He goes to the and he actually goes up to a tax collector, the lowest man on the totem pole, as far as Israel is concerned, and says, "Come and follow me." The writer of this gospel. He goes to the prostitutes, tax collectors, the sinners. He eats with them, spends time with them, talks with them. Why does he do that? Hebrews 10.1 For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had the consciousness of sins. In other words, if the day, let's just focus on the Day of Atonement. If the Day of Atonement worked the first time they did it, there's no need for any more animal sacrifices ever. And everybody's forgiven, there's no more consciousness of sin. But the consciousness of sin comes back every day and every year, and that's in verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sir, uh, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. Now, that word desired is the same exact word that's in Matthew 3.17. Eudikeo. Eudikeo in Greek means well pleased. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Sacrifice and offering you have not been well pleased but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and uh, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired or have not been well pleased, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this he will have been sanctified. Sorry, not he, we. By this will, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. There it is. Why am I well pleased with the Son? Well, I'm not well pleased with the bulls, but I am well pleased with him. The bull, the goat, the lamb, not by its own will does it offer itself. It's forced. The animal doesn't have a will to offer itself, but the son does. And so in verses 8-9, these prophecies from the Psalms are, are repeated again. Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and for sin you, you haven't desired. Behold, I've come to do your will. It's repeated and then added to it is that he offered himself to take away the first Mosaic law and to establish the second. 
which is life in him. The father was pleased, therefore, because he fulfilled all righteousness. So this is exactly what he said to John when he's baptized. So the father's pleased because the son is willing. He's willing to do his will to the point of death on a cross. Innocently. And it's not just physical death as we know. There's a substitution going on here, an atonement on the cross by which the sins of the world are being atoned for. The sins of the world are being paid for. He did God's will by not sinning, but that wouldn't help you. You'd say, bravo, Jesus. You're the only one to do it. He didn't have some sentimental identification with you. It says, here I come to be baptized by John to identify with the sinners. And I do. I feel bad for you. <laughs> you know, like a lot of people in the world, they're like, I identify with you. Good luck. In other words, I identify with you, but I'm not going to do anything. But these thoughts would never cross the mind of our Lord. And this is why he's such an example to you and to me. And not grudgingly, this is the you know as as the light dawns in your heart where's that passage where you know we wait until that light is risen in our own hearts and this risen light is us seeing the Lord Jesus for who he really is and he has given us that's why it's mandated to us he's given us this light by the baptism of the spirit by offering himself he can give the baptism of the spirit And he gives us this life so that the attitude that he had of love for all to give himself and to obey the Father is given to us also. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or what you look like or what your education level is or what your family was like. None of that matters. Not when it comes to this. It was the Father's will for the Son to give Himself for those broken by sin. And this obedience pleased the Father. Now when you please the Father, what are you supposed to do? Same thing. Is it just a bunch of work? It's a bunch of work, but it's not just the work. It's how we do the work. Go to Philippians 2. Philippians 2.5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be maintained or grasped. He emptied himself, but he emptied himself. This kenosis doctrine, uh, often there's a arguments about this translation, emptied himself. Emptied is fine, as long as you real, uh, realize that as the Son of God, he can't, like, rid himself of his deity. That would be... Uh, just silly. I mean, he is who he is eternally. But he emptied himself of the expression of his deity. He's truly human. We'll see this now coming up. I think I'm going to start it right off on Sunday. His his temptations in the wilderness. He is truly human. He has to learn. It's, uh, It's astounding for us to try and comprehend his humanity in such a person as one who is also God. Limited. 
But because of this, he doesn't become an angel. He becomes becomes a human just like us without sin. And notice in verse 5, again, this door is thrown open. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. What, what kind of a man? It's not a mandate. It's a, I don't think it's an imperative. It's an exhortation. But still, these exhortations might as well be imperatives. Have the same mind in yourself, which was also in him. How, what? How is that possible? And yet, since it is commanded, it must be so. If it won't be so, we will be judged for it somehow, according to our works. So God says to us, look, I am not bending on this like parents with children, good parents with children. Here are the mandates. I'm not bending. But like good parents, God is forgiving and patient and he wants to teach his children not just to do, but how to do, to do it like he does in love. So again, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, really a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's an astounding thing here. His death is not the end, as we know. Resurrection is as fitting to Christ as his cross. He glorified the Father. By glorifying the Father, could that end in death? No, death is an invader in the human race. Death isn't supposed to be here. For this reason also in verse 9, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So, pleasing God. Pleasing God demands love and obedience. Obedience, or I should rather say, obedience in love. And obedience in love is going to lose. Guaranteed. Why? Why must we lose? Because love gives to all. Love lays down for all. This is God's love again, not human love. Love sacrifices for all. What are all going to do with your gifts? This is going to be the gift. could be your money. But it, it is your time, your words, your effort, your prayers. And what are they going to do? What happens in a world that does not know righteousness when righteousness is displayed to it? What happens in a world where love is unknown and uncared for and then love hits it head on? What happens in that world? In a world like that, there's conflict. There's clash. Hence, Jesus said, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Because when love faces this world, it will lose. You're going to give and not get back. You're going to give and they're going to spit in your face, just like they did to our Lord. This could be your children even. You're going to give and teach and sacrifice your time, 
And then they're going to turn from you and do what you exactly the opposite of what you taught them to do. And mock you for it. It's going to happen in all realms. So we lose, but we don't. Because eventually we gain. To Christ it's his resurrection. To us, the same. The same. I mean, in this world, there's no guarantees to you and me what you're going to get back. How many people are going to respond to your light and your ministry? The ministry that God gave you? You have works to do, you know. You've been given a spiritual gift to do a whole bunch of works in the body of Christ. What are the body of Christ going to say in response? For some people, they're going to be responded to a little better than others. For some, who knows? But then none of that matters, really, because in this life, if I'm looking to measure the success of my ministry, meaning and not mine as a pastor, but anybody's, anybody in the body of Christ, the work you have to do is called a ministry. That's a, the Greek word is diakonos. It's the same word we get deacon from. It's... It's what work you do is your ministry, the ministry that God gave you. If you measure it based upon what other people respond to it by, you have missed it entirely. The joy in doing God's work is doing it as unto the Lord and not unto people. And some people will respond, and it will be wonderful when they do. But you have to do things according to the Lord, pleasing Him in all respects. Pleasing them, pleasing you and you and you or me? No. Pleasing Him. And those who have eyes to see will be pleased with you too, if they have eyes to see. But again, we're all sinners. You may do good to me and I may not see it. I may mock you for it myself unknowingly, sometimes maybe even knowingly if I'm having a bad day. You depend upon others, you'll not do anything. In this way, our Lord, who was persecuted by all and left by all his disciples, completely and utterly alone. No one understood him. Nobody. And he did it in love. In the Last Supper, he said, I've loved every one of you, even Judas. I have loved you to the end. Pleasing God, we don't lose, but we gain. But for a time, we indeed lose, and it's painful. So why is it this way? Why don't we just gain? You know, like the, the prosperity gospel guys out there, they're, they're well-received if they... If they um, market themselves properly. And they teach Christians that, you know, once you get it, everything's going to be just swimmingly great. They just buy, hoping, they're hoping you don't read your New Testament. Because we are to suffer for his name's sake. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. Pick up your cross and deny yourself daily. You know, there is going to be great pain and heartache and loss. Absolutely. But in this you will also rejoice, not because it's fun, but because you know something is being done with you or to you by God. That we'll get to on Sunday as well. What is God doing to you in all of this pain and trial and suffering? Something very good. So why not just gain? Why don't we all just gain? We're God's children. 
as trouble has entered this world. And the trouble's still here. The trouble gets born every day. I don't know how many babies are born every day, but every one of them is trouble. <laughs> trouble dies, trouble's born. More are being born than are dying. I think that's still true as the population of the earth grows. The problem is us. The trouble has entered the world. That trouble, which is sin, has thoroughly infected every man. What is the penalty of sin? Death. Spiritual and physical. And now, God, in like manner that we are pleasing to the Father, God has invited us to be vehicles of salvation. You and I carry the gospel. And it's, again, work could just be work. I could just walk around with a tape recorder or just say to everybody I meet, I have some memorized scripture or a memorized gospel presentation, and I just say it. This is not what God calls us to do. God calls us to look that person in the eye and consider what do they need? What can I do to get your eyes open to the marvelous beauty of the Son of God? How can I show you the gospel of Christ? How can I show it to my children, to my neighbors? Every one of them is different. How do I... How do I show it in my own life to people? Does it matter how I live? You're a living epistle. The word of God written on your heart is to reveal itself as a light unto the world. This, again, to your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors, your husband, your wife, all in your life. You don't have to go on the mission field to do this. There's plenty of people here who can see it in you if it's portrayed. But if it's just work, right, without love, what is portrayed? You say, well, that guy's busy. I know he does a lot of work. Do you see God in the work? There's only one way you're going to see God in any work, and that is by love. And as Jesus loved the world and gave himself, this is exactly what he commanded us to do. John 13:34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Just like I love you. Love one another. What does he do right after this? He washes their feet. Or did he wash his feet before this? <laughs> I have to look it up. Love one another as I have loved you. Sacrifice. He said, do you know what I've done to you after you washed their feet? In John's Gospel, no one says anything. But he says, I want you to wash one another's feet. Which is why the Mennonites wash each other's feet. No, he didn't have but you know what he meant there was more than the actual washing of a human foot. What he meant was to serve one another. Why do that? You know, to just show who's the you know who's the lowest. Who can be the lowest? You know, it's not that. It's that you're you're showing the love of God to the people in your life, and the people in your church need to see it. You think we're all? None of us are strong enough. <laughs> we need help. And by you operating in love, you encourage other believers in your church and in your family, in your marriage, to the people you know, that love of God expressed through you. And this is what pleases the Father. Christ didn't come to just perform some work. He came to give his life. 
From uh, Vine's dictionary, he says, in respect of agapao, which is the Greek verb love, is agape. In respect of agape, love is used of God. It expresses the deep and constant love and interest of a perfect being towards entirely unworthy objects, producing and fostering a reverential love in them towards the giver and a practical love towards those who are partakers of the same and a desire to help others seek the giver. All right. I don't want you to seek me. I want you to seek him. I don't want you to see me. I want you to see him. How many people in our world now, all they care about is wanting to see people to see them? I read a wonderful article today about screen time. And uh, it's, become, it's, it's become the latest addiction. Now, out of addictions is alcohol is one, drugs two, pornography three. This one's running up the ladder real fast. And it's the addiction of people just looking at their screens on their phones. Uh, whatever and whatever, and it's become an addiction, like it's like a video game. But it's people. Um, it, it showed a chart on the increase of screen time, adults and children, from like 2010 to present day. Incredible jump, and and they had a graph next to it: the jump in depression, anxiety, and amongst kids, ADHD. And uh, it's amazing to see that. What is that? People wanting to be distracted, occupied, entertained by things that are not godly. And, you know, maybe they're not sinful of themselves, but it's a distraction of my time and a distraction from which I could be seeking the giver or portraying myself to others as a light. If they'll look up from their phones. Maybe if you'll look up from yours. And look around you. And see who's in need. I can ignore my family. Look at my phone. I can ignore the people. There's, there was a great little video that someone sent around. Someone from the church which... Uh, it was a, a, a little quick video of a guy who was on a street corner in a neighborhood and a pretty girl walked by. They're both young and he noticed her and she like dropped something and he picked it up and gave it to her and they just chit-chatted a bit. And then next scene, they're at a date. Next scene, they're married. Next scene, they have like three kids. Next scene, they're old and they have grandkids in a full home. I was like, okay, yeah. And then the video cuts back to the original opening where the guy's standing on the corner. The girl walks by. She drops something, and he's looking at his phone. And he doesn't see her at all. She picks the thing up. She kind of looks at him. He doesn't look up. And away she goes. It is brilliant. It's just like, <clears throat> you know, should I ever look at my phone? But imagine. I think in the article I read, there's something like 10 years of free time in a person's life. If you sleep eight hours, work eight hours, eat three hours, I think we did this math some years ago, you get something like an extra 40 hours a week, which you have awake, which is your free time. <clears throat> Translates over an average lifespan 
something about somewhere around 10 years of free time. And what you do at that time defines you, doesn't it? <clears throat> Love of God is in the interest of us. That love makes us love Him reverentially back. And that love gives us love for one another. So that when we're called to do the work of God by the will of God, <coughs> excuse me, that He shows us how to do things like He does. And that pleases Him. And as we saw in Colossians 1.9, I think it was 1.9 or 1.10, we have to please Him. It's not an option. So I'll close with this. 1 Corinthians 12 is where we're baptized by the Spirit and we're all given spiritual gifts. Then God goes, Paul sorry, goes through a list of gifts. And he talks in that passage about the body, how the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. And that all the members of the body have their planned by God, all the members of the body of Christ, and that God has a plan for each of them. And then at the end of that chapter, Paul says something that is confusing to many. He says, <clears throat> I will show you a more excellent way. I'll show you a more excellent way. It's almost like he's throwing spiritual gifts in the trash can for something better. And that more excellent way is love. God's love. He said, if I can move mountains, I don't have love. I'm nothing. I can speak with the tongues of angels. I don't have love. I'm a noisy gong. What happened to spiritual gifts? The more excellent way is doing, not throwing out the gifts. Why would he? It's doing the work that's in the gifts with love. Not just doing the work to do the work, but doing the work with love. This means that you do it sacrificially. You're looking around. You're concerned about the heart of others. Uh, it looks more. Love is more particular in terms of our perception of others and what they're going through, who they are, what they need. It's not just robotic work. Love considers others. It considers a wife, husband, children, family, church members. And it considers them intently with no thought of what they've done what their sins might be, but really just the thought of what do they need to seek the giver. So Christ did not just do works. He did them with love and he pleased the Father. Now when Christ goes to the wilderness, um, the devil is going to tempt him to do things another way. And the devil is going to tempt us to do things another way too. And your flesh is going to be listening to that way. With that, we'll see on Sunday. So, uh, again, for us, work, what pleases the Father? The work, obedience of work in love. Not just the work itself, but the work in love. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the calling that you've given us and the commandment you've given us. May we, Father, uh, understand and see how we do the work that you've given us in our spiritual gifts, in our ministries, with love of others in mind, that we may be just like your son and please you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.